0: Welcome to Provisional Aspirations, a podcast exploring the psychology of religion, philosophy, and clinical mental health. I'm Jeffrey Wallace, author, religious trauma survivor, and graduate student pursuing a master's degree in counseling psychology. Join me as I indulge my academic interest in the human spiritual experience, a curiosity that I couldn't fully explore as a member of a high demand religious group. But now I'm learning out loud and it feels great. I have a vivid memory from my days of door to door Christian proselytizing, of an encounter I had with a man on a random Saturday morning, I think I was 17 years old. My ministry partner, a mentor of mine, was a man in his 40s, and we had knocked on the door of a man in his late 50s or early 60s. That morning our preaching group had convened for a kickoff meeting. During the kickoff meetings we normally would discuss what we were planning to say at the door that morning. The religious organization that we were part of was happy to provide scripts for our morning ministry, so that if any were unsure of what to say when appearing uninvited at someone's door, they could follow a suggested presentation. Many would jot these suggested presentations on an index card and slide them into the first page of their Bible. The script went something like this Good morning, sir, madam. Have you ever wondered, what is the meaning of life? The question was followed by a Bible verse and a publication that provided a succinct answer. To this most elusive question that has plagued humanity ever since the species developed the ability for abstract thought. I was caught off guard when the gentleman abruptly answered, come back when you're 28 and we'll talk about the meaning of life. I glanced at my ministry partner nervously. He gave me a shrug of confusion and I, stuttering, ended the conversation and skulked back to the minivan where the rest of the preaching group awaited my return. But the interchange stuck with me. My group promised meaning, with pamphlets and articles providing scriptural answers to life's biggest questions, such as the meaning of life. It wasn't until much later, after awakening from the fog of my religious upbringing, that I learned that anyone claiming to know the answer to the question, what is the meaning of life, has clearly not thought long enough about the question. So you can imagine my reluctance to read Viktor Frankl's seminal work, Man's Search for Meaning. I didn't need another old guy telling me that they had all the answers. To be clear, despite the book's title, Austrian psychiatrist and philosopher Viktor Frankl does not attempt to provide the final answer to this question in his brief 165-page book. But he does assert, however, that it is the search for meaning that is a primary motivating force for the human organism, and that embracing that search is of therapeutic benefit. Whatever you think about Frankl's theories, one thing is for sure. When a psychologist and Holocaust survivor claims to have developed a therapeutic modality based on his expert observations of life, death, and survival in a Nazi concentration camp, well, you pay attention. Viktor Frankl was a Viennese neurologist even before he was taken to a concentration camp shortly after his marriage in 1942. By 1945, Frankl had spent a total of three years in four different Nazi concentration camps. While Frankl is clear in the book Man's Search for Meaning, that he does not take on the task of providing a full description of the horrors of camp life, he does describe the psychology of survival that he observed in his professional capacity during his time in the camp. One such observation, occurring in the first half of the book Man's Search for Meaning, is of how abnormal psychology can become quite normal when the context is abnormal. Notice this passage on page 22. He says, A man with a corpse approached the steps. Wearily he dragged himself up, then the body, first the feet, then the trunk, and finally, with an uncanny rattling noise, the head of the corpse bumped up the two steps. My place was on the opposite side of the hut, while my cold hands clasped a bowl of hot soup from which I sipped greedily, I happened to look out the window. The corpse, which had just been removed, stared in at me with glazed eyes. Two hours before, I had spoken to that man. Now, I continued sipping my soup. If my lack of emotion had not surprised me from the standpoint of a professional interest, I would not remember this incident now, because there was so little feeling involved in it." End quote. He also discusses suicide as another brutal reality of camp life. He says, and I quote, From personal convictions, I made myself a firm promise on my first evening in camp that I would not run into the wire. This was a phrase used in camp to describe the most popular method of suicide, touching the electrically charged barbed wire fence, end quote. But most importantly, from his experiences in the concentration camp and the reason that he takes up writing the book, were the psychological mechanisms that he observed prisoners used to survive unimaginable suffering. He says this, and I quote, In spite of all the enforced physical and mental primitiveness of the life in a concentration camp, it was possible for spiritual life to deepen. Sensitive people who were used to a rich intellectual life may have suffered much pain. They were often of a delicate constitution, but the damage to their inner selves was less they were able to retreat from their terrible surroundings to a life of inner richness and spiritual freedom. Only in this way can one explain the apparent paradox that some prisoners of a less hardy makeup often seem to survive camp life better than did those of a robust nature, end quote. In a passage of considerable inspiration and vulnerability, Frankel talks about his own spiritual vision that enabled him to endure through the camp. It is a vision of his wife, who later, we do find out, was killed in a concentration camp. But Frankl talks about the spiritual significance of this vision of his wife. He says this, I quote, A thought transfixed me. For the first time in my life, I saw the truth as it is set into song by so many poets, proclaimed as the final wisdom by so many thinkers. The truth, that love is the ultimate and the highest goal to which man can aspire. Then I grasped the meaning of the greatest secret that human poetry and human thought and belief have to impart. The salvation of man is through love and in love. I understood how a man who has nothing left in this world still may know bliss, be it only for a brief moment, in the contemplation of his beloved, in a position of utter desolation, when man cannot express himself in positive action, when his only achievement may consist in enduring his sufferings in the right way, an honorable way, in such a position, man can, through loving contemplation of the image he carries of his beloved, achieve fulfilment. For the first time in my life, I was able to understand the meaning of the words, "The angels are lost in perpetual contemplation of an infinite glory." End quote. There are a number of passages like this in Frankel's book that might seem overly poetic to some, to be of clinical significance, if it weren't for the fact of how beneficial they were, in at least the author's case for overcoming the most overwhelming of human suffering. Frankl wrote Man's Search for Meaning in nine days following his release from concentration camp in 1945. But more importantly, he developed a therapeutic approach that continues to be used in clinical practice today. He called it logotherapy, from the Greek word logos, which denotes meaning. In the book, Frankl mentions that the full description of logotherapy was published in 20 separate volumes in the German language. But he provides a simplified overview in the second half of Man's Search for Meaning. Logotherapy is considered a branch of existential humanism, which I discussed in episode one about Carl Rogers. Logotherapy is based on the assumption that human beings have an innate will to meaning. So whereas Freudian psychoanalysis focuses on the will to desire, and the Alderian approach focuses on the will to power, logotherapy focuses on the will to meaning. At least twice, Frankl cites a quote from the philosopher Friedrich Nietzsche. He who has a why to live for can bear almost any how. Frankl says, and I quote, Man's search for meaning is the primary motivation in his life, and not a secondary rationalization of instinctual drives. This meaning is unique and specific in that it must and can be filled by him alone, Only then does it achieve a significance, which will satisfy his own will to meaning. So to Frankl, meaning in life is not just a defense mechanism so that we don't have to think about uncomfortable existential realities. On the contrary, it is an existential reality, a very real part of the makeup of human beings. It follows then that many modern neuroses come from a frustration of the will to meaning. Frankl talks about what he calls Sunday neurosis, That is, how humans can busy themselves rushing around with jobs and taking care of children all through the week, and then when it all stops on Sunday, they are caught in the void, the existential vacuum. In these moments, there is a frustration in their will to meaning, which may lead to depression, aggression, or addiction. This is where logotherapy comes in. Frankel says this, and I quote, Logotherapy regards its assignment as that of assisting the patient to find meaning in his life, inasmuch as logotherapy makes him aware of the hidden logos of his existence. End quote. It isn't, however, that the logotherapist provides meaning for the client, or dictates what their meaning ought to be. Frankel illustrates it this way, with the metaphor of an eye specialist and a painter. He says, and I quote, A painter tries to convey to us a picture of the world as he sees it an ophthalmologist tries to enable us to see the world as it really is. The logotherapist's role consists of widening and broadening the visual field of the patient so that the whole spectrum of potential meaning becomes conscious and visible to him." End quote. And it isn't that an individual just once for all time with a pithy statement comes up with a way of expressing the meaning for their life. No, but Frankl puts it this way and I quote, "Thus far we have shown that the meaning of life always changes." but that it never ceases to be. According to logotherapy, we can discover this meaning in life in three different ways. One, by creating a work or doing a deed. Two, by experiencing something or encountering someone. And three, by the attitude we take toward unavoidable suffering. End quote. So again, it isn't about just finding a single meaning in life. Rather, it is about constantly finding meaning no matter what life puts before us. Frankel refers to this constant meaning finding in the face of suffering as tragic optimism. He says that life puts before us a tragic triad made up of one, pain, two, guilt, and three, death. But the purpose of logotherapy and this meaning making of logotherapy is to understand that life is potentially meaningful under any conditions, even those that are most miserable. If successful, The result will be, for one, pain, turning suffering into a human achievement and accomplishment, two, deriving from guilt the opportunity to change oneself for the better, and three, death, deriving from life's transitoriness an incentive to take responsible action. Frankel sums it up this way, and I quote, The logotherapist is concerned with the potential meaning inherent and dormant in all the single situations one has to face throughout his or her life. To invoke an analogy, consider a movie. It consists of thousands upon thousands of individual pictures, and each of them makes sense and carries a meaning. Yet the meaning of the whole film cannot be seen before its last sequence is shown." Quote. In Buddhist thought, All of the narratives that we use to bring structure to our life are illusory. Included in this would be meaning in life. These are fictions of our mind. Many of us create these stories unknowingly and then carry on to live in the delusion that our life has specific significance and purpose. However, from a clinical perspective, it seems that these delusions may be beneficial despite their fictionality. It seems that there's well-being in accepting a purpose and creating a meaning, even in the face of extreme suffering. If, as Frankl suggests, we do have an innate need as human beings to find meaning in our lives from moment to moment, then these fictions and illusions are no less necessary to our continued existence than is the food and water that we consume. For my listeners who, like me, have experienced religious trauma syndrome, they will likely attest that the loss of purpose is perhaps the most grieved. Although simplistic, the life purpose that I was given from my religion was a beacon of light through all of my challenges. Losing it was breathtaking. Interestingly, Frankl discusses religion as a tool that many will use to create meaning in their lives. He says this, and I quote, When a patient stands on the firm ground of religious belief, there can be no objection to making use of the therapeutic effect of his religious convictions and thereby drawing upon his spiritual resources. Using religion as a therapeutic mechanism like this may be a particular challenge for a therapist who has experienced trauma at the hands of a religious group. But they will likely need to prepare themselves to do so if it is how the client chooses to create meaning in their lives. For those for whom religion is not a useful framework, they will have to create an individualized meaning system and will have to apply deliberate effort and creativity in doing so. From Frankel's perspective, this is the presenting problem that brings an individual to a therapist's office. They seek assistance to create meaning in the suffering and the challenges that they face on the day-to-day. I suppose the hope is that by the end of a course of therapy, the client has created, with the help of the therapist, the meaning needed to find hope amidst suffering. Even if this is temporary and the client returns again in the face of new challenges, this may be the arc of all of our lives. I recently wrote a review of an article from 2020 that appeared in the North American Journal of Psychology that was called "Effect of Logotherapy Group Counseling in Reducing Depression and Improving Life Satisfaction Among Elderly Males. The article explored the effects of logotherapy-based group counseling to reduce depression and improve life satisfaction in a group of older adult males living in care homes. In order to test their hypothesis that logotherapy would reduce depression and improve satisfaction in life, they divided the sample of men into two groups, an experimental group and a control group. The experimental group received 12 weeks of logotherapy-based group counseling whereas the control group were told that they were on a waiting list. Using psychometric measures, they tested the men for depression and life satisfaction before the 12 weeks and then again after the 12 weeks. The results of the experiment showed significant improvement in well-being for the group that received the logotherapy. The men especially benefited from the sessions that focused on reminiscing about their past life experiences, according to the researchers reliving their past experiences in the therapy room enabled them to recreate a meaningful state of self. I've included a link to the article review in the show notes. In the past, I've indulged in the meaninglessness of life, Frankl's existential vacuum. One cannot argue with its rationality, but as Frankl says, logotherapy is not logical. However, buying into a purpose, if only temporary and illusory, is essential to embrace the tension of psychological growth that Frankel states is fundamental to well-being. Accepting and applying the self-created meaning of logotherapy is essential for us to face suffering with dignity. Frankel says this is part of our existential responsibility. It's as if to say, this is my meaning, for now. And I know it's meaningless, but it is mine, and I accept it. And i found that this meaning-making can be used as a quick tactic in challenging situations by holding our ground and asking, what is the meaning of this moment? What am I learning here? What is my responsibility in this moment? It's as if we prompt our minds to creativity, and as a result, experience numerous potential possibilities of meaning, allowing us to lean into the suffering. So no, Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning does not give us a succinct answer to the meaning of life, but he does say this. Ultimately, Man should not ask what the meaning of life is, but rather he must recognize that it is he who is asked. In a word, each man is questioned by life, and he can only answer to life by answering for his own life. To life, he can only respond by being responsible. Thanks for joining me this week on Provisional Aspirations. I'd love to hear what you think about the show. So please leave a comment. Please leave a review and reach out to me on social media. And don't forget to like, subscribe and share. Thanks for listening.